their revenues are massively up. It looks fake <laughs> in terms of like, this is a MBA presentation of a company that has solid fundamentals that you would want to invest in. It's coal. Yeah. It's coal. It's got the juice. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. The Ides. The Ides. Of March. Of March. Yeah, remember how you said I was like thinking you spent all week coming up with this, and then you're like, no, it comes up on the spot. Well, this one... You should have spent some more time prepping. This is your whole (laughs) intro. It's important. People need to know. And we're not even there, to be honest. We still have a couple weeks before we get to the Ides specifically. But we're we're in March. You know what March is, though? Undoubtedly, undubitably, the madness, baby. I've been feeling there's something about this year that I've been waiting for the March madness all year. Now that we're in March, I feel like I'm in the madness. I cannot wait. I'm pretty excited. Hold on. Are you... uh... You want to take some time off work with me and try and watch some games? First week. I mean, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be in Vegas. Oh, I forgot. You're gonna be so yes, giving money away. Yeah, yeah. Good oh work. yeah, so much money away. <laughs> I'm gonna I gotta find all the schools I've never heard of, and then just second mortgage those things. <laughs> He's joking for those who don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We're gonna start off with listener mail today, right? Yeah. Hit that jingle. Okay, we got the listener mail today from Barrett. Thank you, Barrett. Barrett sent us an episode of Masters in Business. That's the Barry Ritholtz podcast. This is an interview with David Einhorn. Einhorn runs Greenlight Capital, a value investing shop primarily, but has other other flavors that he rocks with. I thought some of the points in here were whether you whether I agree, you agree, whomever I think agrees with uh, the takeaways, the the logic and articulation of some of the the points in here, I think were pretty tight. Loved it. Thank you, Barrett. You sent me this midweek, and what I wanted to know, I I've just found out. I wanted to know which listeners sent this over because I loved it. Because now you you said to me, you said started minute twenty two. So if you want to go straight to the meat, guys, go to minute twenty two. But um. This is clearly, Barrett, I assume you're a value investor, and that makes me so delighted and happy. All right, let's get into the nitty-gritty of his points, although we won't be able to do it all justice because it's an hour-long conversation. We're just going to spend a few minutes on it, but he talks about value underperformance over the last almost decade and this hypothesis that they came up with. Now, I feel like anytime you bring in public money, you have to tell a story, rather that story is true or not simply to appease the outside parties to make it sound like you're smarter than your average investor that's how this game works i einhorn is really smart i'm not saying he's not smart but part of me was going "Mm, this sounds like a really polished story but is that how much what percentage of this story is simply the fact that he has to have a story that sounds really smart because he's raising outside capital. So can I get your point on that before we dive into what he's articulating here? I think the story that he told is plausible. 
to your direct question, though, I do think that there's a there is a story that needs to be told, both from the perspective because people get all Backstreet Boys with it and start screaming, tell me why. But yep. also because using that story to then justify what you do next is important. So it's it's like the combination of current investors and needing to appease plus in attracting new investors and not getting all AQR with it where people were just fully pulling out. Right. Mm -hmm. Where you have to say, how do I attract the next set? And being able to explain what just happened is helpful for being able to explain why you're about to do what you're going to do. So I think story has a lot to do with it. That doesn't necessarily take away from whether or not the story is true, but it does force the point of needing to have one. Completely. But so the story, which I find fascinating and plausible, all I'm saying is I don't know that it's 100 percent true, but let's talk through it in the simplest sense. It goes. There's been a crazy shift to passive investing over the last 15 or 20 years. And just recently, there's more assets in passive strategies than active strategies. It's never really been the case. Going back to the 70s when Bogle first starts Vanguard and is preaching index investing, it's almost impossible to own the index. That's an innovation that happens only 50 years ago, right? And so there's then you see five studies a year, every year that say it's really tough to beat the index, just own the index. Makes perfect sense. I think it's a positive trend for everyone else. But Einhorn's point here is that there's so much in passive strategies now that price discovery is something that happens less and less. And they talk about the, you know your random stock in the Wilshire 5000, just call it like the 2500th name. <laughs> If you don't own the index for the Wilshire 5000, you probably own the S&P 500, maybe the QQQ, maybe some other stuff. The price discovery on that stock might not actually really be happening. There's so few people that actually pay attention to the earnings growth of that stock, to the management reports, to the 10Ks, like all these other things. He just says it doesn't happen anymore. So what we used to do with our value investing strategy We'd find this massive deal, regardless of where that sits in the market. We'd expect other smart, active investors to eventually discover that same deal. And they would buy the thing. And then we'd be able to exit in part because other people caught on to our analysis. And But if people aren't paying attention... That doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen. So he <laughs> says, we changed our strategy to say, for stocks like that, we're only going to invest. We're not going to worry about other people helping us and create more demand for those shares. We're just going to find companies that are trading at four times PE, that are buying back tons of stock, that maybe have big dividends. Like We're going to have the company themselves pay us back. So it's deep, deep value rather than like mid-value, mid right? Yeah, yeah. This is like deep, deep value. dirt cheap stuff. Now... I went, what, Mr. Einhorn? You find stuff at, <laughs> hold, at hold four up, hold times up. Hold up. Can I, can, I, can I throw something out before you go there? So just going to hit on a, a quote or two that he threw out that just backs up what you're saying. So he says that the days of, of, earnings, or, um, of earnings being the reason that you beat value stocks because they just beat earnings, whatever it might be, 15% is the number he gives. Those are over. Well, no, there's just nobody who's going to pay attention to notice that the earnings were 15% better. So if nobody notices, nobody's there, nobody's going to buy, nobody's going to care. And if you pay four or five times earnings and the balance sheet is not levered, 
and they're able to return the cash and buy back 10, 15, 20% of the stock in four or five years, they're going to run out of stock or the stock is going to go up. Perfect. There was like a, a rhyme time in that. Is he Dr. Seuss or something like props? props he was listening to, to our Eminem episode. <laughs> All right. So then, of course, me, this like this was tough for me this week. I had a really busy week with work. And then Mr. Einhorn is saying, Ed, you can buy some stuff at four times earnings. That's hard. That means nightly research is happening on my end. I went through his portfolio. Have you done this, Dougals? Did you go through his 13F? No, I did not. We might do a whole other episode on this because it's one of the most interesting I've seen in a while. And we haven't done a 13F review show in like a year. There's just two names I want to talk about. There's a lot of stuff in his portfolio that is not at four times earnings. And I felt I felt lied to. But <laughs> let me tell you about two stocks. The most interesting. I sent you this PDF. The most interesting in my eyes is Console Energy, which the ticker is CEIX. This is a coal mining stock from Pennsylvania. It, please tell me you were able to spend five minutes on this presentation. I said, I spent a couple minutes on it. This thing is like, so first of all, it trades at four times earnings. Now they mine coal, which is not exciting. This is like the perfect stock presentation, investor presentation. I mean, Everything, there was a lot that was up into the right. There was a lot that was up into the right. There's like a five percent like, dividend spin on it. Yeah, customer diversity is up. Uh, they now export way more of their products than they used to. All their debt trends are down. All their revenues are massively up. It looks fake. <laughs> yeah. In terms of like this is a MBA presentation of a company that you has solid fundamentals that you would want to invest in. It made me think that because it's coal. Yeah. It's coal. It's got the juice. Because it's coal, it makes me think that there was one day that the management team went, okay, they're after us. Just get in the boardroom and hide. And people came with their pitchforks and flamethrowers and they didn't do anything. And then one day they kind of said, it sounds eerily quiet and stuck their heads out and go, let's make money again, boys. And then just went after it. Well, and so, okay. So here's what happened. This is, we talked about a mining stock in Argentina a while back. Yep. That was yep, yep. the listener mail. The price of coal has been crazy off the charts recently. So it's one of those things when you look at backward-looking metrics, it's all inflated. And But even you could do some analysis on the stock, and we don't provide investment advice on the show. This is a research recommendation. But you could do some analysis and say, even if uh, coal is half the price of what it is today, Sorry, based on the I just, trends. I, I just messed you up there with the, the corn. Yeah, I said, I said corn. Uh, you get you could still say like this is a pretty interesting stock. So I'm gonna give a few high level metrics: price to earnings of 4.4, price to book of two, price to cash flow of three, debt to equity of 0.16, current ratio of 1.3, dividend yield of two and a half, revenue growth five years 11% per year, three year 42%. The some of that's the price of coal. But this is a fascinating one that i got to spend more time with i'm just like there actually is some stuff out there that i it hasn't come across my desk um that's just lost in the shuffle and it's coal i i agree with your point it, it lost me a little bit of coal but i do but i do agree with looking at the the charts on this and looking at the figures it's like whoa there's stuff like this out there wild and yeah. to my to my yeah but it's coal point is what you've said 
you're not going to get a stock this cheap without something, some reason why it's that cheap. So I'm all about that. So his that's his second largest holding. His largest holding is home manufacturing. It's called Green Brick Partners. He talks about it a little on the show. Now, this is one. There's a Meb Faber book about 13F investing that shows you can duplicate the portfolios of your favorite investors pretty easily, even if you have a three-month lag. But the one thing he gives caution on is their largest holding because what often happens with their largest holding is that it, it has already run up significantly. And so it doesn't make sense to invest in their largest holding. So that's my pause on this one. It's not as cheap as the coal stock we just talked about, but it's actually not bad either. It's a, it's a really interesting play where I need to probably read the 10K, but I'm shocked. Like basically what I learned this week is we had awesome listener mail. Thanks for that, Barrett. And two, in three to six months when Greenlight's next 13F comes out, you know, like I want to give it some time and see the new stuff he's picking up because yeah. they found some interesting deals. Agreed. And I've, I've got two more hits from the, the podcast, if that's cool, awesome. unless you just want to move on. No, One, I'd love to. Sorry, I got I got so excited about the four times earnings <laughs> that I derailed my life just like I derailed this podcast. <laughs> I derailed my life. One is, I'm going to stick on the, the coal point-ish. One of the things he was saying was that when you have a hypothesis, or maybe I'll say, when they have a hypothesis, when Greenlight has a hypothesis about the market, he says, we just invest in the actual thing that's directly impacted by our hypothesis, not some derivative. Like, for example, if he, he, and he, he was talking about this when he was discussing macro investing, so which is different than the, the deep value points. But if, if you take coal, if their belief was the price of coal is going to skyrocket, then he's saying buy coal. Don't buy a coal company. Uh, an example he brought up was around oil, and he's saying because then you end up buying Exxon, and then Exxon has a big oil spill, and that has nothing to do with your hypothesis. You're you're bringing other variables into it, which I think was interesting. He also discussed betting on inflation as something similar to that. So that's one point. The other point, yeah, on that point, so I, that was a really good point, but it's also great. I feel like you can go back to the Sam Bankman-Fried book or a thousand other things where these people had a really unique hypothesis and then the execution of i think x is going to move they bet on y which they think is correlated to x and he's like no just bet on x like it sounds stupid it's actually really astute it, it is it reminds me of something that why, why can't i think of his name right now the guy angelist guy oh, uh, naval yeah there you go mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of something that naval from angelist brought up it's around the idea that if you have you have a startup and he said he'll have people that come to them and say, okay, right now we're doing A. And the thing we want to get to is D. So in order to get to D, we got to go B, then we do C, and then we'll get to D. And he goes, if you want to do D, just make D B. <laughs> like just do, go do the thing that yeah, you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's very similar. All right, the second thing I want to bring up here is he was discussing low interest rates. I thought this was pretty a pretty solid discussion around this. And it it uh goes along with something we've discussed a few times in the podcast around the fact that interest rates right now in the United States are just in a normal range. 
over the past decade or so, we view this as high interest rates, but they're really historically in kind of like a normal range of interest rates. And what he is saying is that the current view, the current like strong prevalent narrative is that low interest rates were fueling the economy over the last 15 years. And he's saying, actually, low interest rates were holding back the economy over that period of time. And so cutting interest rates does not to him necessarily make sense because he's saying, actually, people get confused right now because like interest rates are still high and the economy is still ticking along and doing well and growing strongly. He said, yeah, those two things, that's the reason where a normal interest rates was allowing the economy to grow. It was a, it was an interesting narrative that I hadn't actually thought about before, whether true or not. I think that it's, it's an interesting perspective and the fact that interest rates are in the normal range makes sense there. Yeah. Um, it's a really fun conversation. I mean, they talk everything from why he supports his college endowment to his poker playing career to his charitable endeavors. To be honest, I wish they spent a lot more time talking about his investing philosophies, but um, <laughs> pretty good. I yeah. Ritzholtz was driving me crazy because there'd be like these massive interesting investing insights and he'd just like kind of gloss Skirt. over it and move yeah. on like, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. like dude no, let's you, talk about you poker missed, now yeah yeah you missed like this incredibly important uh unique point but it is what it is loved it thank you again barrett you want me to reach yeah go for it okay i'm gonna reach in and speaking of something not talking about investing i'm gonna reach in and bring up something that popped my mentals this week not related to investing directly. There is a piece on thecut.com. So if you know thecut.com, it's fashion. <laughs> We're going to talk about some fashion and style. This piece is called The Return Grift is Over. Yes, I know. Your fashion and my fashion. We got it going on like Donkey Kong up in here. <laughs> the Return Grift is Over. The premise of this is that there is a battle over return policies that had occurred. And companies were basically saying, if we don't have a lenient return policy, then we can't compete. And they got so lenient that people just started returning up the wazizi. And now those companies are turning back around and banning people from shopping on their sites. And they are banning them from the perspective of the people that they discussed or they talked to for this piece. They're banning them like out of nowhere. So there are people that were heavy shoppers and then all of a sudden they go to click that you know, checkout button and it's grayed out or says, you've been banned. Sorry, player. I'll give you a stat they have here. In 2023, people returned $743 billion worth of merchandise. It's a lot of merchandise. Now, a couple anecdotes. Alexandra Lamoro, Lamoro, probably how you pronounce it. She was told that no more orders. We will not accept any further orders from this site, uh, ASOS, A-S-O-S. After she returned $700 worth of items she bought for a family photo. So what she did was she said, we got a family photo going on. You get this, you get that. I think she just had a baby. She's like, I don't know what size I am. She, then she, they took the photo. She returned it all. Emily says she got away with making $15,000 order and returns for editorial shoots at Saks once a month for over a year. We're talking about $200,000 worth of merchandise purchased and returned. Over the course of a year. Last one. Nora was alarmed to find out that she was banned. 
but she'd made 172 purchases and returned 99% of them. And this 99% was what she said that she did. It wasn't, this was not the data from the company. Like she went, yeah, I returned 99% and was shocked. But now, you know what? She's come around and here's what she's saying. I'm buying things and then keeping them. And if the product isn't perfect, I just handle it. Doesn't wow. that just sound like shopping? Like, isn't, isn't that just shopping? I, I kind of thought this was a joke because the first example in this article is a woman named Karen. And, you know, yeah, that's well, funny. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> um, do you remember where this happened? I remember when it changed for me. I mean, growing up, my mom would buy like whatever the $4 shorts neon green and they wouldn't fit and there was no my parents won't return those things i was like wearing them even though they they were like three sizes too big like it did not seem like an option in my household no they Um, were clothes yeah it was like and you bought it like you were dumb enough to buy it like you are now stuck with this for the rest of your life and then sometime in the last 20 years there was this mindset with with higher end retail especially that like I mean, I really think this is what happened. This was the initial hypothesis. Like, sure, buy three of those things in three different sizes. And half the people are going to forget to return it. So we're going to make money because you're going to buy more than you would otherwise. Right. Yep. I think that's the initial hypothesis here. Amazon did something similar uh, within the past year. And people were up in arms because it was same. there's no warning. It was like, all of a sudden you don't get an Amazon prime anymore. Like we don't even deliver to your house because of how frequently you do returns. I totally understand it. Have you seen any of the breakdowns on how expensive some of this stuff gets when it gets returned? Because a lot of the stuff they take back a return, they'll pay you full price, but then they can't really sell it at yeah. full price again. And you might deal with a customer service agent and they might pay return shipping. Like this stuff, you can spend, you can lose the price of the product plus 30% in a lot of these returns. It's really bad for the companies. Yeah. And on the the note of with no advanced warning, technically the companies in their terms of use policies, the return policies, they have language that says something like, don't abuse this. Mm-hmm. So I think from their standpoint, this is the warning, <laughs> but that's the warning. That's the warning to the broad customer base. It's not saying, look, we're going to let you buy this time, but if you return more than 50% of the next 10 goods that you buy, we're going to ban you. Like there's not an individual warning. It seems like that's coming from this, but broadly, and you just know that retail has got to be in a place like the writing. Cause they usually don't do these things. You should do this when you see that the writing is on the wall. But this is like the writing's been on the wall and then put in a board deck by the time you've you've made these changes, typically. Well, I mean, I've done this analysis or a very similar analysis where you're looking at customer profitability and, and like who you're losing your shirt on. And this stuff is jumping off the page at their, whether it's their customer support team or their strategy group or whatever. Like it's just going... We lost for that one lady that returned two hundred thousand dollars worth of merchandise. <laughs> like the, to her credit card, they probably are like, "We lost X dollars last year." There is yeah. no chance, you know. Like we could have two more people employed if she doesn't shop. It. Yeah, that's legit. That's <laughs> legit. And this this also gets back to the arbitrage point that we talked about maybe six months ago. I think we were talking about it in the world of work. 
it's and by that what i mean by the arbitrage point is we were discussing that sometimes there are policies that are so lenient that you know that they're so lenient like that's not the status quo going to the future it's so lenient now so take advantage of the arbitrage opportunity that you yeah. have there but then when it goes away be like yeah that didn't make any sense to begin with like you should just know completely all right which i love next? this i love to talk fashion on the shows keep bringing it up all right <laughs> we haven't talked about renaissance or nikes in a while so i'm on board <laughs> saw a chart this week because everyone is talking about how heavy the u.s technology sector is as a percentage of total u.s uh, market cap value uh, let me try and say that a better way <laughs> like market microsoft apple yeah microsoft apple nvidia google meta make up this is uh i'm eyeballing it here about 33 percent of the total weight of the united states stocks right now it just seems crazy insane right and you see the parallels back to like 1999 the tech bubble when everyone went technology went just crazy out of sorts if you go back to 1900 and do a similar comparison there is one industry that also dominated U.S. stocks. Got any idea what it was? Yes, because I looked at the chart. <laughs> at that time, rail was like two-thirds of the total value of all U.S. stocks. What's interesting here, just that this graph kind of nudges you towards, is like, is the AI boom like building railroads throughout the U.S.? And is it very natural to go, Oh my goodness, I can send goods from New York to San Francisco. Like that yeah. is a game changer. That is so valuable. Go ahead. This yeah, so so actually this might be a little bit of a different point, but I'm going to write it like it's the same point. When I look at this, what I see in that 1900 graph where railroads are a huge component is technology. We just don't view it that way today. But if you go back to what to 1900, I would combine rail telegraph together and say at that time that was technology yes we just don't we like we and, and if you go forward a hundred years from now the things that we are naming technology today are just going to be diffused into a whole bunch of other industries and there will be something else right that's there probably called technology at the time but <laughs> but that i think that that's what's interesting about this is that when you look, I look at the rest. So 2024, we have this bucket of technology. Then you have like health, retail, financial services, et cetera. Those things, there are tech companies in financial services yeah. today, but they're called financial services and not technology. So that's what I also think is really interesting, but it's also fascinating it, for the base point. I love the point, but I think you took it a little too far because you can take the tech is eating the world mindset and just say every company is a technology company right now. So I think you have to be, you have to draw the yeah. line somewhere. It's tech. In, what you were saying is tech infrastructure is what we're talking about. And rail was tech infrastructure at the time. So I love that you pulled out the telegram here in the 1900 graph, because if you read Daniel Gross's book, which is on my bookshelf back here, pop, um, why bubbles are great yep. for the economy. Yep. My goodness, what we did with telegrams might be the same thing we're doing with artificial intelligence. It was, like 50 companies in the late 1800s, if my memory's right, built all these telegram wires. And then what happened is 
45 of those companies went bankrupt because you couldn't be like, I have to go to this company to send a wire to Charlotte, North Carolina, and this company to send a wire to Cleveland, Ohio. Like it didn't make sense. You had to consolidate in order for the business case to actually make sense. That's right. But we might be doing the same thing now and being like, there's something here. We are going to throw money at this and figure out whose AI model or the top three AI models that actually win. Microsoft's probably going to own all of them at some point. <laughs> I mean, they own they own the one <laughs> right now. Well, they did the new uh, investment in France, and I'm, that's yeah. a joke. But um, yeah, I I think that's there's parallels here. Is all and this graph does an incredible job of telling a story without any words. It just it just really does. Yeah, it's good. I love it's it. It's a good graph. I am right now. Hold up. I'm just trying to see how much cash the U.S. government has. Zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Operating cash. The U.S. Okay. government. This is $617 billion. This is FY22. So more than a year ago. Okay. $617 billion. The reason I'm, I was looking that up is because as you bring up organizations like Mike, like who's going to own AI, and you bring up like Microsoft, for example, Microsoft is at 100 something billion dollars. Berkshire Hathaway is at what, 150 or so billion dollars. Apple's probably something similar. These organizations, the power that these organizations have to, to spend on, for them, what is like frivolities, like the, the, the investment that Microsoft made in OpenAI, which is not the AI you were just talking about, OpenAI is like nothing to them, nothing to them from a, from a dollar spend perspective. And with it, they can own that, they can invest in another one and have a pretty solid chance of owning AI under their wing for no price because they have so much money. Are you ready for this? I'm I ready for it. Ready yeah. for this. I'm, oh, I'm ready for this. <laughs> you know how Apple shut down its car business this week? Yeah. I got a pitch. Shout out, David. I got a pitch that Apple should buy Rivian. You know, Rivian's market cap is down like 90% from IPO. What is it right now? Uh, let me pull it up. Less than a trillion dollars? <laughs> Much less than a trillion dollars. <laughs> then yeah, probably. They probably should. I find this so interesting because it just, I just wasn't thinking about it. And now my main argument here is that I don't know that Apple actually believes they need a carbon billion. 11 billion, which is about what they invested. dollars falls that, out of Tim Cook's pocket on the way well, to work. Yeah, they they invest it does. And Apple invested about 10 billion, I think in trying to build their car so far. So so Rivian uh, listen guys, I'm not a I haven't done a deep dive. I'm not an EV expert. I know a fair amount about the cars and the stock. Rivian could use a cash infusion. They are not Tesla. They're not even profitable. Yep, yep. If Apple truly wants a car and they actually went out and figured how hard it is to build a car from scratch as a technology company, which everyone kind of knew was going to fail, they should buy Rivian. <laughs> you state that very confidently. I don't really know much about Rivian and how that might vibe with the Apple ecosystem, but the logic train that you just went down, like if you said they should buy someone who's already done the thing, who's shown success, whose cars are quite beautiful. They're, they're a clear number two in the market. It's not like um, there are so many small yeah. players yeah, 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 that yeah. like don't have a proof of concept, don't have cars on the road, 
don't have positive reviews. But then, point being, they are not anywhere close to Tesla. They don't have mass market share. They don't. But I think this is a fascinating idea. It is pretty fascinating. It's like when they were talking about Apple buying Peloton before. Like when they were trying to get into the, ignore what's happening with Peloton necessarily, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's if you're trying to get into that market, there are players in the market that the money would fall out of Tim Cook's pocket, you know, as you walk through the front door. So, and just to provide some context here, uh, Rivian IPO'd, uh, well, its its share price in November of 2021 went as high as $180 a share. It's currently trades at 11. I mean, which basically is worse. down. Which is worse. That's fascinating. And and two, in a similar way, if Microsoft decides that they need an EV, I don't think Microsoft has any interest. Or NVIDIA, for some odd reason, decides that they need <laughs> to own a car company. Like, go buy the thing. It's so cheap. Now, it, I, I don't own the stock. I'm not going to own the stock. I think it's so cheap because they're probably going to lose money for another decade. Or potentially go out of business if they don't get the right cash infusion. But if someone wants it, and this is why Apple is a perfect example, I find that just to just be fascinating. Here's what I find to be fascinating. Lee Lu is back on the show, my friend. Okay. That's a fishbowl transition for those that are listening here. Reaching in the fishbowl, came across this post by Lee Lu from years ago, a few years ago, called The Practice of Value Investing. Lee Lu breaks down here. So, and this was a this was taken from a talk that he did in uh, in uh, China, and then turned it into like the transcript, basically into a post. Is what this is. So he's talking to folks over in China, and what he wants to do is he says, "I came and I talked to y'all before. I came to the school and I talked and I talked about value investing. What I did not talk about was how to do it. Like, what are the principles in practice?" That's what I want to talk about today. What he lays out are baseline concepts, which I think is always good to get back to first principle fundamentals, and then a few points around each. So the four tenets that he lays out. One, stocks confer part ownership of a business. They are not just pieces of paper to be traded. Check, check. Number two, margin of safety. At its heart, investing is about making predictions of the future. However, we can only obtain some indication of probabilities as the future is inherently unpredictable. Therefore, we must leave ourselves a margin of safety. Check, check. Number three, Mr. Market. The market is there to serve you, not to guide you. Check, check. Number four, circle of competence. Investors must build their own circle of competence through long-term study and then stick within it when investing. A check, check. So, <laughs> <laughs> so those are the those are the four principles. And then he mostly he kind of hits on the part ownership and margin of safety briefly and then says, "Okay, can we just all agree on those two things?" <laughs> now I want to spend most of the time talking about Mr. Market and the circle of competence. That's mostly what he ends up doing. Mm -hmm. And I have a, I have a few Mr. Market points that I want to hit on and then one investing versus speculating point. So here's when he talks about Mr. Market Here's what he discusses. What he discusses. He says, what Mr. Market does, he wakes up in the morning and he yells out a whole bunch of prices. He's like, oh, this is $2 and that's $7 and that's $10, blah, blah, blah. He yells out prices. But sometimes he gets all worked up and he gets overly optimistic or overly pessimistic, right? This is classic 
Benjamin Graham, Mr. Market description. He goes, so like when you look at it in that way, it sounds easy. You just sit back and wait till he gets overly optimistic or pessimistic because we all know what's going to happen. But in practice, it's harder. Now I'm going to read this, this part verbatim because I think it's solid. But as soon as you begin work and enter the market, you will realize that there are real people on the other side of every transaction. These people are all well-educated, have more money than you, have more power than you, and have more experience than you. They are highfalutin, highly accomplished, and often in positions of seniority. The reason that he lays that out, and I want to read it verbatim, is because that's what starts to mess with the psychology. Is what is when you go, these people know more than me, they have more money than me, this is the smart money, this is the, and then you start to see this optimism or pessimism go on for too long. That's when you go, oh, okay, maybe it's not overly optimistic or overly pessimistic, it's just truth now. And you don't sit within the confines of what you know about Mr. Market. We read the exact same piece, I highlighted the exact same lines. That was the piece I was yeah. going to read verbatim. Uh, because he does such a, such a great job of outlining his value investing principles, which are different from anyone else's value investing principles, but very similar concepts, right? Yep. And I love that they're unique, and he's not just taking a, you know, he's not just taking someone else's talking points. But then that point, especially for like a individual retail investor, is so important. Because it's very easy to sit in business school or to read the intelligent investor and say, yeah, I know the market's irrational. Like the first page of any good investing course is to pull out a newspaper back when newspapers are relevant, say, pick your favorite stock and look at the 52 week high and low. And they're typically about 50% different, sometimes more and go explain that to me. It's only a one year's time frame. Why is there so much variability, right? It's largely because Mr. Market. It's largely because not all those prices are rational. So he closes with summarizing value investing in life. Can I read this piece too? Since you since you stole my thunder here, Douglas. And by the way, are you a closet value value investor? What's going on here? No. No, no, no. I we can is that a real question? Because I can yeah. go into that. Or do you want to read yeah. your verbatim? You seem to, well, let's spend a little time out. You seem to really enjoy brilliant value investing pieces like this i do because i think the principles are still very important even when when uh you know you make fun of me for very good reason like i deserve all the boots in my face when you make fun of me about buying twilio mm -hmm. i'm not buying twilio because it's i'm calling it like a value stock i am buying twilio because of what i see from like a growth stock potential but when I think about when I would buy, in my non-model portfolio, when I think about when to buy these stocks, I do use versions of value investing principles. I don't know, I'm not looking for PE ratios that are four necessarily or anything like that, but I think about like margin of safety. Like this thing has been beaten down so much that, and here's, here's a big difference between what you do and what I do, there's lots, but here's one with Twilio specifically, either it's going to completely fail or they're going to take off. You buy things that are like, it's, it's highly unlikely the thing's going to completely fail. I'm yeah. like, this thing might fail. <laughs> like it legitimately still might yeah. fail. So I use the principles in, even in my 
the growth, quote unquote, growth investing. And that's why I think Einhorn was saying this and other people have said it too. They're not completely divergent philosophies. Not at all. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Speak on it. Okay. He says, is value investing a kind of faith? I think it might be because it manifests itself in a set of beliefs. You aren't willing to exploit exploit others. You aren't will or you won't participate in zero sum games. You will pursue your fortune in a way that also benefits society. That's clearly Munger influence right there. That's me adding that. You won't be someone who counts on gambling to make money. The next time you see speculators, you won't need to wish them good luck because you know luck can't last forever. Instead, you'll simply wish them to have fun. When people go and play at the casino, they try to buy happiness, but it's a waste of money because you can't buy happiness. It even seems like a waste to go to the casino because so many people come back feeling down and out. In the worst case, you might become addicted and lose it all. Again, Munger influence there. If you say you're only going for fun, some fun, that's okay. But if your values are different than those of a gambler, you will keep your distance from gambling in the stock market. You will not invest in things you don't understand. And remember that understanding means being able to make accurate forecasts over a long period of time with some high degree of confidence. You can't satisf- If you can't satisfy this condition, then you won't do it. So yes, from this perspective, value investing is a set of beliefs. So yes, you can also call it a faith. Boom. Boom. I love it. I love it. Boom. Boom, boom, boom. It's fun. The- it's a really good transcript. It's tough to find. Uh, props to you for finding the whole talk because he's a very intelligent uh, man and a great investor. Yeah. Solid. Thank you, Lilu. You got any more rants in that bowl of fish? One shout out. Okay. Jason Swag. He's back. Mm. He took he took like six <laughs> months off. And this is the first sentence of his current <laughs> his latest article. If you invested a thousand dollars in NVIDIA stock at the beginning of this year, <laughs> it would be worth seventy-five million now. <laughs> he goes on he goes on to say he's kidding and that's junk and he hates those statistics which he always has i that was great it's so great because you see so many of those statistics and it's like yeah but one i didn't do that two i never would have done that yeah three why are you like throwing that in my face it, like it's it's dumb to look at those stuff yeah if you invested only a thousand dollars in 1864 <laughs> In the S&P 500, which did not exist in 1864. It was... Which you couldn't invest in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love I love that. I love it. Love it. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. That's a wrap for this week. SkippyDougals.com is where you can go for all things Skippy Doogles. SkippyDougals at gmail.com is listener mail. We appreciate y'all. Thanks, guys.